0: Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. I'm your host, Kerry Parker, and this is episode 215 for April 12th, 2021. Uh, and I've titled this one, uh, at least tentatively, Trust No One. And I'll explain why, but uh, today we have a news show and a lot of news. And <laughs> you look, there seems to have been a theme in this last week. Certainly data leaks is one of them. Um, but also just this... Notion, and I, again, that's why we're going to call this one trust no one. Is that man, it just seems like you can't trust anybody, and on but it's more than that, you really shouldn't. And I think that needs to be a philosophy that we adopt with our privacy and our security going forward. And it's not just me saying this, this is actually a lot of industry experts are saying this as well. And so, anyway, I'm going to go through the news stories and I will editorialize on that a little bit, and um, and we'll circle back to that. So We have a lot of news stories to cover today. Um, We're going to talk about a vaccine survey scam that you need to watch out for. Uh, There's been some interesting moves with ransomware uh, in the last week or two that um, they keep finding more and more ways to pressure people to pay money. And of course, I'm sure you've seen the articles uh, or the news stories about Facebook and another massive leak. Facebook is trying to play it down i've actually got a couple articles to read to you about that one with slightly different takes on it and linkedin linkedin again had another leak and there was a credit card database that was leaked and it was not one that you would normally think about leaking there were some troubling news stories about a very popular data collection site called LexisNexis. i've got an update on clearview ai that's not good And uh, honestly, a sad story about the ACLU um, really surprised me. Um, So anyway, lots to get to today. And uh, I've got an interesting tip of the week for you. So let's get to the news. All right, first up, whenever there's a catastrophe of any sort whatsoever, whether actually positive or negative, if there's anything that's really popular in any way, uh, the bad guys will seize on that opportunity to try to find a new angle to trick you out of your money or your information or both. Um, so COVID-19, you know, when that hit, there were, and there still are, lots of scams around the virus and information relating to the virus. We covered this, you know, in depth over the last year as new variants of this popped up, but now that the vaccines are coming around, that's kind of the new hot thing. And the bad guys are seizing on that opportunity now to find new ways to, uh, to attack us. So, uh, this latest one was a vaccine survey scam. And, uh, I want to read to you from an article from life hacker, uh, about this scam and how to avoid it. So it says, Since most people have already received their COVID relief checks, grifters have pivoted to phishing attempts related to vaccines, and it's catching people off guard. The FTC, which is the U.S. um, Federal Trade Commission, is warning people to stay away from unsolicited texts or emails offering a reward for filling out a survey about vaccines, as they say it's a scam. Here's what you need to know and how to avoid it. A scammer posing as a vaccine manufacturer will send you a vaccine-related survey request via email or text message. These requests will also promise a reward for completing the survey, sometimes in cash or more often a free gift like an iPad. The survey questions will seem authentic, too, which might explain why many people have been falling for the scam. As one victim described it, nothing about the survey that aroused my suspicion, and I'm a skeptic. To claim the prize, however, you'll be asked to pay a smaller shipping or handling fee and type out your banking information into a phony form. Of course, no prize will ever be shipped or handled. The scammers will try to steal your money using your bank account details along with any other personal details you've shared. The FTC says no legitimate surveys will ever ask for your credit card or bank account number to "quote unquote" pay for a free reward. And there's also no reason why a vaccine manufacturer would require personal information like your social security number or date of birth, especially in an unsolicited text or email. So this is just one example. And unfortunately, I'm sure there are others. Just be on the on the lookout for this stuff. Be wary. Anything that sounds too good to be true probably is. And even if it's too bad to be true. Um, a lot of scammers will use scare tactics as well. So just be very wary when these things come out. If any, If it's something you think might be legit... Uh, they'll probably represent that they are from some official entity of some sort, a company or a government agency. Uh, so don't click on any links they give you. Don't call any numbers they give you, uh, but go look up those uh, contact information separately yourself online, contact them directly yourself, and you know, it'll probably take you a while to get through the rigmarole. But if you're really worried that it somehow might be real, find a way to contact them yourself without using the information they give you. Uh, so you make sure you're using official numbers. Uh, and then they will be able to tell you whether or not it's a, a real thing or not. All right, next up, got a couple stories here about some ransomware stuff. One from Bleeping Computer, who does a lot of work in the ransomware department, so it's not surprising, uh, about some data leaks around some universities, and then a related story actually that I'll cover next. So but let me talk to this topic first about some ransomware gangs that are trying to leak data from universities in order to make them pay. So again, from Bleeping Computer. Man, I, and I apologize. I'm a little stuffed up today for some reason, so I apologize for if I sound that way. Um, but let me read this article from Bleeping Computer. It says personal and financial information stolen from Stanford Medicine, University of Maryland, Maryland Baltimore, and the University of California was leaked online by the Clop ransomware group. That's C L O P. The threat actors obtained the documents after hacking the university's Excellion file transfer appliance software used to share and store sensitive information. Data stolen in the attack targeting Stanford Medicine's Excellion server includes names, addresses, email addresses, social security numbers, and financial information reported the Stanford Daily. And this is a quote from the University of Maryland at Baltimore. They say, quote, We discovered the breach earlier this week when the hackers posted evidence that they had accessed a limited number of files in our system containing some personally identifiable information, unquote. And then a quote from uh, University of California, they say, UC has learned that it, along with other universities, government agencies, and private companies throughout the country, was recently subject to a cybersecurity attack. The attack involves the use of Excelion, a vendor used by many organizations for secure file transfer, in which an unauthorized individual appears to have copied and transferred UC files by exploiting a vulnerability in Excelion's file transfer service, unquote. Since February, the ransomware operation has been leaking files stolen after compromising vulnerable Excellion FTA file sharing servers. The ransomware gang started leaking the university's data late March during late March, attempting to coerce them to pay the ransoms to have the stolen data deleted and the leaks stopped. Last month, the Clop ransomware gang leaked other datasets allegedly stolen from the University of Colorado and the University of Miami. The attackers haven't gained access to the university's internal networks, with the incident only impacting their Excellion servers. All right, and the article goes on. And um, as always now, I'm including these links in the show notes if you want to follow up and read the whole thing. But basically there's, I've never heard of this company, Excellion, A-C-C-E-L-L-I-O-N, that makes some sort of a file trans- secure file transfer device. Uh, and it has been compromised. And the bad guys hacked this, and a lot of the companies that are in organizations and universities that use this, service or device and stole some of their files. And they're threatening to release more of this data if they don't pay up the ransom. And of course, they will then say that we will delete the data once you pay, but you'll never know for sure. It's it's a horrible situation. The only way to really avoid this is just not get caught in the first place. Uh, Here's another one, though, that's kind of related to that. um, And this was from Krebs on security. And again, this is a much from a much longer article, but I'm just uh, excerpting it here. So uh, from Krebs on security, it says, some of the top ransomware gangs are deploying a new pressure tactic to push more victim organizations into paying an extortion demand, emailing the victim's customers and partners directly, warning that their data will be leaked to the dark web unless they can convince the victim firm to pay up. And here's a quote from one of the uh, one of these notes that are sent to vic- to the victim's customers. It says, good day. If you receive this letter, you are a customer, buyer, partner, or employee of fill in the blank, whatever the victim is. The company has been hacked, data has been stolen, and will soon be released as the company refuses to protect its people's data. We inform you that information about you will be published on the darknet, and then there's a link to a dark web uh, victim shaming page, if the company does not contact us. Call or write to this store and ask to protect your privacy. The message above was sent to a customer of Racetrack Petroleum, an Atlanta company that operates more than 650 retail gasoline convenience stores in 12 southern states. The person who shared that screenshot above—and of course, you can't see it—I just read it to you—isn't a distributor or partner of Racetrack, but they say they are a Racetrack Rewards member. So the company definitely has their email address and other information. Several gigabytes of the company's files, including employee tax and financial records, have been posted to the victim-shaming site for the Klopp ran- ransomware gang, and that's the one we just talked about in the. Pre- previous article. Klopp is one of several ransom gangs that will demand two ransoms, one for the digital key needed to unlock computers and data from file encryption, and a second to avoid having stolen data published or sold online. That means even victims who opt not to pay to get their files and servers back still have to decide whether to pay the second ransom to protect the privacy of their customers. As I noted in Why Paying to Delete Stolen Data is Bonkers, and that's a link to another article on Krebs and Security, leaving aside the notion that victims might have any real expectation that attackers will destroy the stolen data, new research suggests a fair number of victims who do pay up may see some or all of the stolen data published anyway. All right, so I'll stop there. Again, this is from a much longer article. But here's the deal. So these ransomware gangs keep coming up with more and more ways to pressure their victims into paying. And what used to be not long ago, that if you had really good backups of all your data and you could get them restored in time, uh, in a timely manner that you could just blow off the ransom. You could say, well, fine, you know, I don't need your, I don't need the data that you encrypted on my hard drives. I can just replace it with copies of that data and you can just go away. I was about to say something a little worse there. <laughs> um, but now, seeing that this that you know companies are getting wise and getting better about their backups and, and things like that, these, now that what these companies are doing, instead of just encrypting your data in place uh, so that you have to unlock it to get your data back, they're actually exfiltrating your data, or at least some portion of your data, anything they think would be something you would not want to get loose, you know, either, I don't know, incriminating emails or internal company proprietary secrets or your customers' juicy data. They are now saying that, okay, fine, even if you've got backups, that's great, but I've got a copy of your data and I'm going to release that data into the wild uh, if you don't pay this ransom. And apparently some gangs are even doing a two-part ransom thing, like one, one part to get your encryption key or your decryption key and one part to supposedly get us to delete the data that we stole. Now, there's no way you could know that they're going to actually delete your data. So You know, I I don't know why anybody would pay for that. I mean, basically at this point you're, you should just consider yourself screwed and that data is gone and you better start taking, you know, doing damage control now, because you can never be sure that data is not going to be let go. All right. So again, this is, you're going to get a running theme for the stories this week. Let's move on to the massive Facebook data leak. And it's, we're calling it more of a leak than a breach, Because the data that was leaked apparently so far seems to be quote-unquote public data. In other words, this is data that was scraped off of people's profile information, which technically everybody on the planet has access to, but uh, you're not supposed to be able to get it in bulk in in this way. Uh, At least I think that's what they're saying. Let's read these articles. I've got a couple articles I want to read here that take a slightly different angle on this. Uh, First is from Bleeping Computer. Uh, And again, this is the expurgated version. Let me read that, and then I'm going to read to you from the Wall Street Journal. The mobile numbers and other personal information for approximately 533 million Facebook users worldwide has been leaked on a popular hacker forum for free. The stolen data first surfaced on the hacking community in June 2020 when a member began selling the Facebook data to other members. What made this leak stand out was that it contained member information that can be scraped from public profiles and private mobile numbers associated with the accounts. The data sold included 533,313,128 Facebook users with information such as members' pro, uh, member's mobile number, Facebook ID, name, gender, location, relationship status, occupation, date of birth, and email addresses. From samples of the Facebook data seen by Bleepy Computer, almost every user record contains a mobile phone number, a Facebook ID, a name, and the member's gender. According to Elon Gal, CTO of cybercrime intelligence firm Hudson Rock, it is believed that threat actors exploited in, in 2019 a now-patched vulnerability in Facebook's ad friend feature that allowed them to gain access to members' phone numbers. It's unknown if this alleged vulnerability allowed the threat actor to retrieve all the information in the leaked data or just the phone number, which was then combined with information scraped from public profiles. After the initial sale of the data, which is believed to have been for $30,000, another threat actor created a private Telegram bot that allowed other threat actors to pay to search through the Facebook data. Today, this Facebook data leak has been released for free on the same hacker forum for eight uh, site credits, a form of currency on the hacker forum, equivalent to approximately $2.19. While data breaches are initially sold in private sales for a high price, it is common for them to be sold for lower and lower prices until they are eventually released for free as a way of earning reputation within the hacker community. Included in the data leak are the phone numbers of three of Facebook's founders, Mark Zuckerberg, Chris Hughes, and Deskin Moskowitz, who were the fourth, fifth, and sixth members first registered on Facebook. In response to our queries regarding the data leak, Facebook told Bleeping Computer that this data is the same as, as was harvested in 2019. And this is a quote from a Facebook spokesperson. Uh, They say, quote, this is old data that was previously reported in 2019. We found and fixed this issue in August of 2019, unquote. While the data may be from 2019, it is common for phone numbers and email addresses to remain the same over a period of many years, making this valuable to threat actors. This release has been met with enthusiasm by other threat actors on the hacker forum as they can use it to conduct attacks on people listed in the data leak. For example, threat actors can use email addresses for phishing attacks and mobile numbers for smishing attacks, which is SMS-based phishing or smishing. Threat actors can also use mobile numbers and leaked info to perform SIM swap attacks to steal multi-factor authentication codes sent via SMS, which we've talked about actually just recently. It is advised that all Facebook users be wary of strange emails or texts requesting further information or telling you to click on enclosed links. All right, now let me move on to Wall Street Journal. Uh, It says, Facebook says its latest data incident wasn't a hack, but privacy advocates warn that 533 million users' information may still be weaponized in the future. Facebook Inc. has underscored one point in responding to the recently reported leak of data of of these users. The incident wasn't a hack. Instead, the technology company's representatives say the trove of names, phone numbers, and other information circulating online stems from a mass scraping of public profiles that Facebook discovered and halted in 2019. The nuance may be key to avoid triggering a web of state-level laws requiring companies to report data breaches to regulators and the public, privacy and legal experts say. But some also argue that the distinction makes little difference to users as hackers can mine such datasets to connect previously disparate pieces of information for targeting future attacks. Facebook didn't alert users to the incident and has no plans to, in part because it can't determine with certainty which users would need to be notified, a spokesman said. He added that the company takes the information's sensitivity into account when making such decisions, pointing to how users themselves included the affected data in their public profiles. Privacy and cyber experts experts say hackers can cross-reference such data sets which don't necessarily need to include sensitive information to sharpen attacks. Investigators probing the hack of Microsoft Corporation's Exchange email software, for example, are exploring whether attackers' targeted email addresses gleaned from previous data thefts or mass scraping of information from social media accounts. The U.S. has no federal standard for when companies must disclose data breaches. Various state-level breach notification laws tend to cover incidents defined by unauthorized access or theft of personal information, she said. And, again, I've kind of cut this up. So, unfortunately, it looks like I've cut uh, out the name of the person who I just quoted. But here is a quote from a, a lawyer representing Facebook. She says, a phone number alone under any state breach notification law that I'm aware of is not personal information, unquote. Facebook, which in the past has criticized researchers and app developers for scraping information from its platform, said the recently reported leaks stems from a malicious actor reverse-engineering a tool used to connect users with their mobile contacts rather than from hacking its platform. Mike Clark, Facebook's product, manager direct, product management director, wrote in a blog post Tuesday that the actor used software to upload, quote, a large set of phone numbers, unquote, to the tool to find matching profiles. Mr. Clark said the actor then crawled accounts and hoovered up available information. And here's another quote from Clark. He says, it is important to understand that malicious actors obtain this data not through hacking our systems, but by scraping it from our, uh, our platform prior to September 2019, unquote. And he added that the affected data didn't include financial information, health data, or passwords. The FTC in 2019 voted to impose a landmark $5 billion fine on Facebook for alleged privacy lapses. In early public statements from uh, one key episode, the mishandling of user data by Donald Trump-affiliated data firm Cambridge Analytica, Facebook similarly highlighted that the incident didn't constitute a breach of its systems. Regardless of the labels, said Justin Brookman, the director of consumer privacy and tech policy at the advocacy group uh, Consumer Reports, Facebook should have notified users of the 2019 incident so they could have taken precautions. And this is a direct quote from him. He says, given their history and their management, it's not at all surprising that this is the choice they have made, not to tell users, unquote. Okay, so just in summary, basically what happened is Facebook had a programming interface uh, that was broken and allowed somebody to use a technique to scrape people's phone numbers from Facebook data, which they shouldn't have been able to do, and also to scrape data on public profile users and automated that in such a way that they were able to snarf up data on half a billion (laughs) Facebook users. And that happened two years ago. And Facebook, when they found out about that, fix the bug in their programming interface to disallow that going in the future. But of course the damage had been done. And at the time, what they said then, and what they're saying now is, yeah, this was bad. The people who did this were bad people, but the data that they got from us was something that anybody could get. If they just knew what web page to go look at, they just did it in such a automated fashion as they were able to get a whole bunch of that data. So therefore we don't need to tell anybody about it because that's all publicly available information. Now, I would have to hope that that's not really true. Like you should be able to limit who can see what on your profile. So even if your friends and family maybe could be able to see that, maybe not just anybody could see it, but uh, I'm, it's not clear to me if that's true uh, with the particular data here that was stolen. But because of that, and because we don't have really good laws around this in the United States about informing customers of data breaches or data leaks or data mass data scraping in this case, I guess is what it is that Facebook doesn't feel like it needs to tell anybody. Now, of course, news organizations and me, uh, we are out here telling you now that this has happened. And, you know, you basically have to assume that any data that you had on Facebook might be used against you by some nefarious people trying to trying to trick you out of giving money or whatever, whatever scam, you know, they may try to attempt based on your on your information or identity theft for that matter. Now, if you want to know whether or not you were in this data breach you can go to haveibeenpwned.com. That's from Troy Hunt. We've had him on the show several times. Um, and that is spelled like have I been owned, but it's it's, it's pwned. It's a hacker term. It's P-W-N-E-D, pwned, com, And that's, I used to work by entering an email address. And then basically Troy and his company and his service trolls the dark web looking for these data sets uh, and... Buys them, purchases them, finds some ways to get them, and puts them in its own database so that you can go in and search on your email address usually and it will tell you if that email address has been associated with any of these data leaks uh What he's added now uh for this Facebook breach because most of the Facebook records were key uh were keyed off of cell phone number, not email address um so to really find out if you were in there, you would need to put in your cell phone number or whatever phone number I guess you gave to Facebook, which is probably a cell phone number. Um, so he has added the capability to search through his database records via phone number, and you'll need to use the international number format. So assume there's already a plus in front of it and then use the country code and the, and the regular digits, I think without any dashes or parentheses or anything. Um, so if you, if you want, you can search on your phone number at have i dot com uh, to see if you were part of this Facebook breach. But frankly, I, I think there's what, 2 billion or plus Facebook users on the planet. And if half a billion people were in there, you know, The odds are unfortunately pretty good that we're in there. Um, And if not part of this breach, some other breach. So what we come back there is to not overshare on Facebook, but it gets worse. There's more. Uh, Now let's talk about a LinkedIn data breach. It's kind of similar. Anyway, this is from The Verge and I'll just read about it. It says, you might still be reeling from the news that personal information from 533 million Facebook accounts has been made freely available online. But now there's another huge batch of people's data floating around the web, including data from LinkedIn, which is a Microsoft-owned social network. The potential scope of the leak is huge. An individual selling the data on a hacker forum claims it was scraped from 500 million LinkedIn profiles, according to CyberNews. In a purported sample of the 2 million of the profiles for sale, LinkedIn members' full names, email addresses, phone numbers, genders, and more were visible. LinkedIn, however, says the data includes information from many places and wasn't all scraped from the professionally focused social network. And this is a statement from LinkedIn. They say, quote, we have investigated an alleged set of LinkedIn data that has been posted for sale and have determined that it is actually an aggregation of data from a number of websites and companies, unquote. The company also contends that, quote, no private member account data from LinkedIn was included, unquote, which perhaps means that the scraped data only includes information you'd be able to see on someone's public page. LinkedIn insists this was not a LinkedIn data breach, which would be technically true if the data was scraped rather than collected by a hacker penetrating LinkedIn systems, but doesn't do much for users whose data is now being sold on the Internet. LinkedIn has yet to tell us if it will notify users whose data was in the dataset. Facebook, if you were wondering, doesn't plan to inform users if they were one of the people whose data was leaked. Uh, if you want to check whether your email or phone number was part of the Facebook uh data leak, you there are instructions here and it gives you a link, and I think that just goes right back to have I been pwned. Okay. And don't it gets worse. Here's another story from Gizmodo. Until recently, the carding store Swarm Shop was a popular, illicit online market where cybercriminals could go to sell and purchase stolen credit card and banking data. However, the store's luck may have run out, and it may have taken a little of your luck with it. On March 17th, a huge cache of the site's user and administrator data was leaked online to a different underground forum, a new report published Thursday by threat research group firm Group IB shows. While it's unclear exactly who stole this data, how, or when, what we do know is that there is a lot of it. The leak exposed thousands of data points, including information on four of the site's administrators, 90 sellers, and 12,250 buyers. The dump included criminals' nicknames, hashed passwords, account balance, and contact details for some of the entries, uh, the researchers said. What you may be wondering is, so what? Why do I care that a hacker's email address is now floating around the internet? Just know that it's a little more complicated than that. The leak also exposed the personal and banking information that the criminals had been trading, meaning that data of thousands of victims has also been leaked. The information is quite sensitive, includes, and it includes 68,995 sets of U.S. Social Security numbers, as well as 623. 3,036 payment card records, nearly 63% of which are from U.S. banks, according to Group IB's findings. Granted, this data was already compromised, though the recent breach means that it's now even more widely distributed than it already was. Instead of just being peddled to some individual buyer, it is now freely accessible to anybody who wants to download it. And here's a quote from Dmitry Volkov, uh, who's part of uh, Group IB. He says, quote, While underground forums get hacked from time to time, card shop breaches do not happen very often. In addition to buyers' and sellers' data, such breaches expose massive amounts of compromised payment and personal information of regular users." Though these incidents may be uncommon, cybercrime forums have actually been getting hacked a lot lately. Ongoing reports of sites getting hit have aroused the suspicion of criminals, some of whom see the handiwork of law enforcement at play. Attribution in these cases is pure speculation, however, so it's currently impossible to say why an uptick like this might actually be happening. In the case of Swarm Shop, researchers seem to believe that the attack is the work of another criminal. The site suffered a similar attack about a year ago, at which time uh, data was also stolen. Regardless of who is responsible, researchers think the breach is likely to affect Swarm Shop's standing in the cybercrime community. So, even the bad guys are being hacked by other bad guys, which, as this article points out, is. Still, to your detriment, because even if the bad guys managed to steal some of your data, they were selling it onesie Z you know uh here and there, but you know when breaches like this happen, and it just gets loose to everybody and so in summary, here, as part of the theme here today of Trust no one is the only data that cannot be stolen, abused, or hacked is data that doesn't exist in the first place now you know i'm not advocating that you go off the grid and get and have no credit cards or have no bank accounts uh but choose very carefully with whom you share that information where you store that sort of stuff for automatic bill payment or for easy purchases online you know you might not want to leave that data lying around anywhere you don't absolutely have to all right next up i've got an article from the intercept um, and about it's, this is about Nexus. and I used to think of these guys as a research tool for journalists, and I'm sure it is that. but I don't and I'd have to look at the history of this company, but my guess is that somewhere along the line, these guys, like a lot of other companies today, have realized that they were sitting on a gold mine of data that can be used for other purposes and probably already had the means by which to uh, snarf up a lot of data and then expanded that reach to get even more data. It's, it's a never ending uh, vicious cycle. And when you have this data, it can be abused. Um, and of course, whether or not you consider it abuse is kind of from the perspective of the person who's being affected. And that will, um, that will be a little more obvious after I read this article from the intercept. Okay, the popular legal research and data brokerage firm LexisNexis signed a $16.8 million contract to sell information to U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement, or ICE, according to documents shared with The Intercept. The deal is already drawing fire from critics and, and comes less than two years after the company downplayed its ties to ICE, claiming it was, quote, not working with them to build data infrastructure to assist their efforts, unquote. Though LexisNexis is perhaps best known for its role as a powerful scholarly and legal research tool, the company also caters to the immensely lucrative risk industry, providing, it says, 10,000 different data points on hundreds of millions of people to companies like financial institutions and insurance companies who want to, say, flag individuals with a history of fraud. LexisNexis Risk Solutions is also marketed to law enforcement agencies offering, quote, advanced analytics to generate quality investigative leads, produce actionable intelligence, and drive informed decisions, unquote, in other words, to find and arrest people. LexisNexis February 25 ICE contract was shared with The Intercept by uh, Magente, a Latinx advocacy group that has criticized, criticized links between ICE and tech companies it says are profiting from human rights abuses, including LexisNexis and Thomson Reuters. The contract shows LexisNexis will provide Homeland Security investigators access to billions of different records containing personal data aggregated from a wide array of public and private sources, including credit history, bankruptcy records, license plate images, and cellular subscriber information. The company will also provide analytical tools that will help police connect these vast stores of data to the right person. Though the contract is light on details, other ICE documents suggest how the LexisNexis database will be put to use. A notice posted uh, before the contract was awarded asked for a database that could, quote, assist the ICE mission of conducting criminal investigations, unquote, and come with, quote, a robust analytical research tool for in-depth expo- exploration of persons of interest and vehicles, unquote, including what it called a license plate reader subscription. LexisNexis uh, Risk Solutions spokesperson Jennifer Richmond declined to say exactly what categories of data the company would provide ICE under the new contract, or what policies, if any, will govern how the agency uses it, but said, quote, our tool contains data primarily from public government records, The principal non-public data is authorized by Congress for such uses in the Drivers' Privacy Protection Act and uh, Graham-Leach-Bliley Act statutes, unquote. I actually haven't heard of any of those, but anyway. ICE did not return a quest for comment. It's hard to wrap one's head around the enormity of the dossiers LexisNexis creates about citizens and undocumented persons alike. While you can at least attempt to use countermeasures against surveillance technologies like facial recognition or phone tracking, it's exceedingly difficult to participate in modern society without generating computerized records of the sort that LexisNexis obtains and packages for, for resale. The company's databases offer an oceanic computerized view of a person's existence by consolidating records of where where you've lived, where you've worked, what you've purchased, your debts, run-ins with the law, family members, driving history, and thousands of other types of breadcrumbs. Even people particularly diligent about their privacy can be identified and tracked through this sort of digital mosaic. LexisNexis has gone even further than merely aggregating all this data. The company claims it holds 283 million distinct individual dossiers of 99.99% accuracy tied to Lex IDs, unique identification codes that make pulling all the material collected about a person that much, that much easier. For an undocumented immigrant in the United States, the hazard of such a database is clear. For those seeking to surveil large populations, the scope of the data sold by LexisNexis and Thomson Reuters is equally clear and explains why both firms are listed as official data partners of Palantir, a software company whose catalog includes products designed to track down individuals by feasting on enormous datasets. This partnership lets law enforcement investigators ingest material from the company's databases directly into Palantir data mining software, allowing agencies to more seamlessly spy on migrants or round them up for deportation. And here's a quote from uh, City University of New York, uh, CUNY's law professor and scholar of government data systems, Sarah Lambden. She says, quote, I compare what they provide to blood that flows through the circulation system. What would Palantir be able to do without these data flows? Nothing. Without all their data, the software is worthless, unquote. Asked for specifics of the company's relationship with Palantir, the LexisNexis spokesperson told The Intercept only that its parent company, RELX, was an early investor in Palantir and that, quote, LexisNexis Risk Solutions does not have an operational relationship with Palantir, unquote. And yet, compared with Palantir, which eagerly sells its powerful software to clients like ICE and the National Security Agency, Thomson Reuters and LexisNexis have managed to largely avoid an ugly public association with controversial government surveillance and immigration practices. They have protected their reputations in part by claiming that even though LexisNexis may contract with ICE, it is not enabling the crackdowns and arrests that have made the agency infamous, but actually helping ICE's detainees defend their legal rights." Now, I think that is probably a stretch or it may also be true, but it does not take away from the actual fact of what they're doing. So, you know, immigration in the United States is a very touchy subject. It's something we have not gotten right. We have not done a good job with this. Uh, It's opened us for a lot of criticism, both internal and external, but I still think it's wrong to, to use data in this way. And again, it all comes back to, we shouldn't be collecting this data in the first place. It should be highly regulated, uh, and it should not be free to trade around in this manner. And yet another story along similar lines. Uh, This is from BuzzFeed News, and this is about Clearview AI and some of the things they are doing with the police, which we've talked about several times. Let me read this article. It says, A controversial facial recognition tool designed for policing has been quietly deployed across the country with little to no public oversight. According to reporting and data reviewed by BuzzFeed News, more than 7,000 individuals from nearly 2,000 public agencies nationwide have used Clearview AI to search through millions of America's faces looking for people including Black Lives Matter protesters, capital insurrectionists, petty criminals, and their own friends and family members. BuzzFeed News has developed a searchable table of 1,803 publicly funded agencies whose employees are listed in the data as having used or tested the controversial policing tool before February of 2020. These include local and state police, U.S. Immigrations and Customs Enforcement, the Air Force, state health care organizations, offices of state attorneys general, and even public schools. In many cases, leaders at these agencies were unaware that employees were using the tool. Five of them said they would pause or ban its use in response to questions about it. Basically, what they're saying there is that the use of these tools was unofficial. And, you know, like maybe individual police officers or, you know, departments had used this without getting, you know, approval up the chain. And so that when, you know, BuzzFeed News went and talked to official spokespeople at these organizations, they had no clue. Uh, Some of them said they had no clue this was going on and would put a stop to it now that they were aware of it. That's what they were saying. And we've, I've reported on that before. Uh, Okay. So back to the article. Our reporting is based on data that describes facial recognition searches conducted on Clearview AI between 2018 and February 2020, as well as tens of thousands of public pages of public records and outreach to every one of hundreds of taxpayer-funded agencies included in the dataset. The data, provided by a source who declined to be named for fear of retribution, has limitations. When asked about it in March of this year, Clearview AI did not confirm or dispute its authenticity. Some 337 public entities in the dataset confirmed to BuzzFeed News that their employees had tested or worked with the software, while 210 organizations denied any use. Most entities, uh, that is 1,159 of them, did not respond to questions about whether they had used it. Still, the data indicates that Clearview has broadly distributed its facial recognition software to federal agencies and police departments nationwide, offering the app to thousands of police officers and government employees who, at times, used it without training or oversight. Often agencies that acknowledged their employees had used the software confirmed it happened without the knowledge of their superiors, let alone the public they serve. Such widespread use of ClearView means that facial recognition may have been used in your hometown with very few people knowing about it. In a statement to BuzzFeed News, Hon Ton Tat or that it's a, it's a Asian name, and I know I'm butchering it. It's spelled H O A N is the first name, T O N T H A T is the last name. And I I think in previous episodes, I've just called him Mr. T so I could stop butchering the name. Anyway, um, the the company's co-founder and CEO, he says, quote, it was gratifying to see how quickly Clearview AI has been embraced by U.S. law enforcement, unquote. He declined to answer more than 50 detailed questions about the company's practices and relationships with law enforcement agencies. And here's a quote from Senator Ron Wyden, who is a big, uh, or he's an Oregon Democrat and a big privacy advocate. He, uh, he says, quote, Americans shouldn't have to rely on BuzzFeed to learn their, that their local law enforcement agencies were using flawed facial recognition technology. This report pulls back the curtain on Clearview's shady campaign to encourage the secret adoption of its service by local police. Inaccurate facial recognition will inevitably cause innocent people to be wrongly accused and convicted of crimes and could very well lead to tragedies, unquote. So I've talked on the show many times before about Clearview AI, and there's I've actually seen some interesting things pop up on um, mainstream media about them as well. But basically what this guy did, if you don't recall, is Mr. T used software to automate the download of public profiles of Billions of people. A lot of it came from Facebook, but some of it came from LinkedIn and other social media sites. This is stuff that people shared willingly on these social media sites. So it was publicly available information. But through the use of computer technology, he automated the collection and aggregating of all of that data into a massive database uh, of people. And what he used in particular were pictures of people. And if you've been on Facebook and you've ever been or gosh, Instagram or any other social media thing that is very photo centric that uses lots of pictures and in particular tagging. Uh you may recall in the past where they've prompted you, "Hey, do you know this person? Tag them." Or "Who's in this photo with you? Let us know or tag them so they can participate in this discussion or whatever." They they sell it as something that you should do because you want to do it and it's fun. When in reality what you're really doing is you're training these systems to recognize these faces. And that is why, even if you are not a social media person, even if you're not using these services, if you appear in pictures that people have posted and those people go to the trouble of tagging all the faces in that picture, Facebook still knows about you and they still have pictures of you and they will eventually be able to find other pictures of you because they can use facial recognition to search their database of pictures to find other pictures of you. And that is essentially what Clearview AI has done. They've accumulated this massive, massive treasure trove of pictures with associated names and and the idea being you can whip out this app, take a picture of anybody. You're at a restaurant. You're walking down the street. You're on a train. You're uh, somewhere in public, and you say, "Oh, that hey hey, she's cute. Maybe I, maybe I should contact her. Take her picture." This app would tell you who that person was. <laughs> so we are no longer anonymous. But this company says that it is only selling this to law enforcement for law enforcement reasons. I mean that's bad enough, by the way, but. uh during a lot of its trial phases, it was given out to a lot of other people, like I think Ashton Kutcher, who was a potential potential investor in the company was given access to this app. And he was he was freaked out by what he could do with this app. So anyway, that's just sorry, that's just a little refresher on who Clearview AI is and what they do. And it's obvious they are still going strong. So OK, uh, next up, last up, really, um, for the n- main news articles the week. This, this was a rather disturbing and disappointing article about the ACLU, the American Civil Liberties Union. They are a very, actually, uh, they're, so they're not really liberal, uh, but they are big about fighting for rights. Uh, one of the classic stories of the ACLU is that they they fought for and won the right for Nazis to march in Skokie, Illinois. Uh, I think this was back in the 70s. Uh, because they stood up for free speech, Uh, even though they abhorred the speech and what they were using it for. It was a march. It was just a protest. And they defended their right to do so, even though they did not agree with what they were doing. And when it comes down to it, when you're fighting for rights, that is really the key issue. It's, It's easy to fight for rights that you agree with. It's really hard to fight for rights when they are used for things that you don't agree with. Anyway, so that's who the ACLU is. They've, done, that is. they've done much, 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 much more than that. They fight for our rights all the time. I've, I believe that what most of what they're doing is really good stuff, but this was disturbing. So this is from fortune.com. And let me just read the article and then I'll talk about it. The American Civil Liberties Union or ACLU revealed that it shares data with a company it regularly criticizes for privacy blunders, Facebook, The Civil Liberties Group quietly revealed the new details about its data sharing on Thursday as part of an update to its online privacy statement. In the update, the ACLU says it shares data with quote-unquote communications platforms, including Facebook, to deliver content to people who may be interested and to target specific users with digital ads. This data includes people's names, email addresses, phone numbers, country of residence, and zip codes, the uh, the ACLU told Fortune. The organization collects that data from people who visit its website to, for example, sign up to join ACLU distribution lists, buy something, or make a donation. When the ACLU shares personally identifiable information with third parties, it says it only does so in a quote-unquote secure manner and with a quote-unquote promise from the third party that it keeps that data quote confidential and use it only for the purpose of carrying out the functions we have engaged it to perform, unquote, its privacy statement reads. Ashken Sultani, a technical consultant who says he performed a privacy audit for the ACLU last summer, said that the practice goes against everything that the ACLU stands for. And this is a quote from him. He says, these relationships fly against the principles and public statements of the ACLU regarding transparency, control, and disclosure before use, even as the organization claims to be a strong advocate for privacy rights at the federal and state level, unquote. The ACLU said it shares information with Facebook because its members are more likely to get at their news and take action from posts on Facebook and other digital services rather than after reading mail or newsletters. And this is a statement from the ACLU. They say, quote, the ACLU must often work with organizations that we are actively challenging to improve their own policies and practices. We mitigate Facebook's dangers by turning over only that data necessary to reach our constituents on its platform, unquote. The group said that users can now opt out of having their data shared with third parties. It didn't directly address why it waited until now to tell users about that data sharing. The news about the data sharing comes as the ACLU, which pitches itself as a defender of personal freedoms, continues to strongly champion Internet privacy. The organization regularly criticizes corporations for quote-unquote spying on their users. It also has publicly condemned Facebook for, the, for leaving the data of up to 87 million users vulnerable to being taken by data analytics firm Cambridge Analytica ahead of the 2016 U.S. presidential election. The ACLU has spent more than $5 million in Facebook ads since May of 2018, according to data from Facebook's ad library, a searchable repository of ads on the service. Over the same period, the organization has spent an additional $500,000 on more than 1,100 Google ads. Catherine Crump, director of Samuelson Law, Technology, and Public Policy Clinic at the University of California, Berkeley School of Law, wow, that's a mouthful title, suggested that the ACLU's financial staff is responsible for the data sharing and not the organization's, uh, organization's legal team, which litigates privacy cases. The two groups don't often work in tandem, said Crump, a, formal, a former ACLU attorney, according to her LinkedIn profile. And she says, quote, There has always been a tension between what happened on the 17th floor, where the advocacy lawyers were, and what happened on the 18th and 19th floor, where the finance people were located. I'm not terribly surprised by that part, unquote. For several years, the ACLU has made digital privacy part of its mission. On its website, the group, for example, criticizes how corporations use people's data, saying companies, quote, sell to the highest bidder, unquote. And here's another quote from the that ACLU website. It says, quote, we shouldn't have to choose between using new technologies and keeping our personal information private. The ACLU works to promote a future where technology can be implemented in ways that protect civil liberties to limit the collection of personal information and to ensure that ind- individuals have control over their private data, unquote. So again, that was a longer article. I just pulled out parts of it. And my guess is it's probably exactly what... Um, uh, Ms Crump said is going on, which is probably that in big organizations like this, it's not uncommon for one hand to not know what the other hand is doing. And so I will be very interested to see what comes of this now that you know these this has been made public and to see what the legal side uh, the privacy rights lawyers at the ACLU might do in response to what the finance team has decided to do to have better marketing. But it really it, it it just goes to show that you can't <laughs> you can't trust anybody, and I don't mean that in a tinfoil hat kind of way, you know, or a really negative, pessimistic kind of way. And that kind of leads to uh, what I want to editorialize, kind of summarize a lot of the what's what's happened uh, recently with these data leaks, and that is that we it, it we need to move our cybersecurity and cyber privacy strategies to a mode of trust. No one. And I didn't make this term up. This is something that's, uh, a buzzword right now, actually in the industry. And you're probably still, will start hearing it more from me. Uh, and maybe even catch away for this on the mainstream media data longs to be free, uh, or it's really hard to contain depending on how you want to look at it. Even with the absolute best of intentions, it can be stolen. It can be hacked. It can be abused by rogue employees. It can be quietly obtained through national security letters, you know, by national, you know, by intelligence agencies. The only data that you don't have to worry about protecting, the only data that can't get loose, the only data that can't be abused is data that you don't have. Not only does that mean data that you didn't collect in the first place, but it's also data that you've purged. But even just beyond a you know, a privacy standpoint, this is a security problem. This data that gets loose can be abused in other ways, especially if you start combining that with other data sets. This can be used for identity theft. It can be used to blackmail people. It can be used in all sorts of horrible ways. And what we're finding over and over and over again, and it's, we've had so many cases of this just in the last few months or last year is our security systems are just not up to snuff. We are too permissive. It for too long, you know, IT folks, and you know, I kind of consider myself in that realm. Have just assumed that within a certain perimeter, you can trust everything. Like for example, uh, in a big organization, a big company, you've got VPN services and things that allow you to get on the corporate network that protects getting into the network from outside the network. But once you are within the network it was often the case that you could access everything uh indiscriminately uh so if you were an employee at a, at a sufficient level within a company you could you know and maybe there's some you know minor controls but it was much much easier to get at you know sensitive information and databases proprietary and private and otherwise uh within the company once you were in the corporate network and we just can't do that anymore the devices or people can be compromised so we really need to make a move to a much more compartmentalized version of security where you can't even trust people on the inside and the cybersecurity metaphor often used in this case is like an M&M it's got a you know it's got a hard shell but it's got a soft chewy center meaning that it, you know it, it, it at the border at the perimeter Uh, of your security at the, at the external access to your corporate networks or your device. If it happens to be a computer or things like that, Um, it's hard to get in, but once you're in the security is lax. And so part of this trust, no one philosophy is to fix that. And you not trust anything inherently, you know, just because it's coming from a computer within your network, doesn't necessarily mean that it should have access or that you can trust it. And the same is true for data. Um, when you're looking at big companies that hoard data, uh, you need to make sure that you're very strict about, you know, what roles you assign in, in the corporate network to allow people to, who would have access to that data to make it strictly on a need-to-know basis. And there are still many ways you can you can format your security such that you can limit, who can get to it for certain periods of time or you can have them be able to access that data access that data in a way that they can process it or get or glean the information they need to without actually having direct access to the data. Things like that, it's, it's, it's positions like that, it's, it's techniques like that, it's policies and procedures and things that we need to be adopting to you know, mitigate and limit the, the possible damage from data breaches and hacking from within. Now for you, what that means for you, as a listener, as an individual, the takeaway here is that you should minimize the data that you allow to be collected. Uh, or if you know, the data has been collected, if you can have that data deleted, or, you know, if you want to get super clever, maybe you can actually go back and try to change some of that data to make it incorrect. Uh, um, a lot of times when I sign up for something that I know doesn't matter, I will lie when it when they ask me for my for my birth date. I will not give them my full name. If I don't have to, I will give them a false address or, um, uh, because if I know it doesn't matter if they're just being too nosy, I will lie. I will, I will give misinformation. And perhaps that is something you could do as well. If you can't, if there's, you know, some social media thing or whatever that, you, you know, you don't really want them to have certain information, but they require you to give it, you know, and it might be too late to go back and change your birthday. That would be, that would be kind of suspect. Uh, But you might be able to change, you know, your home phone number, you might be able to change your address, things like that, because it shouldn't, you know, in cases where it doesn't matter. Um, But otherwise, if you can go back to those places and have your data deleted, you know, request that they delete your data, certainly if you're not using that service anymore, um, you might ask them to delete your data. And going forward, certainly, just be very careful and very guarded about how much information you give out and make sure that it's absolutely necessary for them to do what they need to do for you, not for them. Uh, but for you. And that brings up another term that I'd like to throw around, and that is fiduciary, a data fiduciary in this case. And if you're a fiduciary, if you, if you act as a, in a fiduciary capacity, uh, you are required morally, ethically, legally to only do things that would be for the benefit of your customer. And that doesn't mean it works for you and it works for them, or in some weird indirect way, it gives them a better experience it has to be directly for their benefit. And if it's not, you're prohibited from doing it. So, I you know, I think that one thing we can do in this country and, uh, or around the world, and the GDPR is trying to do this in uh, in the EU countries, is enact this notion of data fiduciary. And we already have notions of this, of this today. Like your doctor is uh, a medical fiduciary. They, they get all sorts of potentially compromising information about you that, that, that they are only supposed to be able to use for your direct benefit. You know, think of uh, a psychologist or, uh, you know, somebody you're going to for mental health issues, you give them extremely personal information that they are bound by law to not give out and high, you know, ethical standards just in their profession. The same can be true of financial advisors. Now, not all financial advisors are fiduciaries. And whenever you're in a situation to need a financial advisor, that is one of the first questions I always ask is, are you a fiduciary? And not all of them are. But if they are, that means that all the investment advice they give you must be from a truly holistic perspective that includes everything and not just something that's going to pad their bottom line. You know, so if, if the best thing for you to do is to pay off your credit cards and not invest more money with them, which 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 they would make money on, they need they're, to tell you that. They're required to give you that advice. And I think we need to do the same thing with personal data. So that leads to my tip of the week. And, and the tip of the week is very simple buy and read the book. Privacy is power. Um, I just wrote a long review of this on my blog. You can check it out. There's a link in the show notes, but if you just go to firewalls, don't stopdragons.com right now, it's the top article. And I, in that article, I go in depth, uh, an in-depth chapter by chapter re- review of this book. But the summary is just this. It's, I wish I could have written this book. It is so well done, so well written, so well researched, but it's also, very eloquent and very poignant. It's, it, it makes its points very well. I will say that some of the earlier chapters, there's, there's a one chapter that kind of follows a fictional person throughout their day and kind of catalogs all the ways in which that person's data was tracked, all the breadcrumbs that person left, all the digital exhaust produced by that person throughout uh, a typical day. And you'll find it staggering and you'll find some things in there that just sound, there's just, you know, like impossible. There's no way that's true. Um, I'm here to tell you that that it is true. Now it's, it's all worst case scenarios. This is all somebody who has not really gone to any great lengths to protect themselves from this. So it might seem kind of odd. And it felt odd to me as I read it, but that's because I've been doing this for so long that I know that, you know, that's silly that I wouldn't have done, that I would have allowed some of those things to happen. Nevertheless, many people aren't aware of those things. and They do allow those things to happen because they don't know they're happening. So anyway, and that's a, you know, it's a chapter called data vultures that is a day in the life of, of, data mining, basically. Uh, and then it goes into, you know, how did we get here? And I've talked about this many times in the show, you know, where, but historically, how did we evolve? How did big tech evolve from companies that provided searches, you know, you know, internet search to a company that was ad based and, and data mining based. Um, so obviously it focuses a lot of Google and Facebook, but it's really interesting to see, you know, over time, how that developed. And, you know, Google used to have classic You know, the classic story of Google is that one of their mantras built into the company by the founders was don't be evil or don't do evil. I forget how they said it, but they have since um, taken that out of the company policies because I guess it was too hard to work around. It was a little too absolute. I don't know Uh, (laughs) that that's an interesting story all by itself. But so it talks about how we got there, you know, historically, how we've come to this point where we do all this data mining. And then it really gets into why privacy is so important and why it, you know, an imbalance in privacy creates imbalances in power. And it's crucial to understand, and this book does a very good job of explaining why privacy is a collective good. It's a collective endeavor. Your privacy matters to me, uh, because when you give away data, you're giving away my data as well. And that's why we can't just, you know, uh, one popular notion today is to treat data like property. Like this is something that if I choose to, if I'm knowledgeable enough, then I should be allowed to sell my data on purpose. It's, it has value. Why should I be compensated for that? And that would just solve all these problems. If, if Google would just pay me a fair price for my data, we could all keep going about our business. But it's, that's an oversimplification. Because your data contains my data, your contact list contains many, many people, your DNA contains information about all of your blood relatives, your your personal story, um, things that you buy, think places you go, um, will put you uh, in contact with other people and relate you to other people, your social graph of all the people, you know, and interact with your data exposes privacy of other people. So you don't really have the right to sell your data because it affects other people besides yourself. That's That is one of the points made by this book of several, but it's not just a doom and gloom book. It's it's full of promise and hope as well. There are things that we could be doing. There are things that are already happening, things I've told you about. It's, you know, it had to get worse before it got better. But we're, I think we're turning a corner on this. I really do. And this book talks about that as well. Um, things that you could be doing both as a citizen and as a consumer to help protect your privacy and those uh, the privacy of others you know, and find real solutions to these issues, uh, that allow us because data itself isn't bad. Data itself is not evil. Collecting data is not evil, but personal data must be treated specially because it really screws things up. If you get it wrong, both, um, it can ruin lives. It can ruin, uh, democracies. It can ruin companies. It can ruin society in so many different ways. And this book talks about them all. So I'll, (laughs) you can, you can already tell that I'm hyped up about this book. I have personally already bought, I mean, I bought a copy for myself, well, I reached out to the author, uh, Carissa Veliz, uh and I'm trying to get her on the show. She is swamped because this book is so popular. Um, it was released in Europe first, and it was just now released this week or last week in the United States. And uh, so she didn't have time to come on the show yet. I'm hoping maybe in the future she will as a guest. That'd be, that'd be so uh, wonderful. Um, but she did send me a signed copy of her book on the uh, condition that I buy another copy and give it to someone else. Uh, I've actually bought five copies of that book at this point (laughs) to give away to other people, which I don't often do. Um, So again, that'll just another data point that lets you know how important I think this book is. So check the book out, buy it, read it yourself, honestly, buy it and give it to other people as well. This is, this book contains so much that we all need to know and understand. And I think more than anything, just, you know, other than just the, the interesting data about what's data is being collected and how we might fix that going forward It really, truly makes the case of why privacy is important. And I think that's what's missing in a lot of people. I think a lot of people just don't, haven't internalized why it's so important. And I think if they realize just how important privacy is, not only on a personal basis, but on a societal basis, for our democracy, for us as a people, um, for your friends and family. I, I think if we understood that better, then we would be more, you know, focused on things we could do about it and trying to stop what's already going on. So anyway, that is my tip of the week. Buy the book, Privacy is Power. There's obviously a link in the show notes. Uh, If you go to Amazon or wherever you'd like to buy books, you can search on it there. Wonderful, wonderful book. Buy it, read it, share it. All right, everybody, that wraps up this week's show. Thanks for tuning in. We've got a really, really interesting interview, uh, two-parter coming up starting next week with Cooper Quinton from the EFF. Uh, And he's going to be talking to us about cell site simulators, uh, uh, often called stingrays. And these are devices that are being used more and more around the country by law enforcement in particular, but also by state intelligence agencies, including foreign, foreign ones here in the U S to spy on us. And it's really super creepy. And he did some really interesting research to try to find these things. And and we talk about at a higher level, of course, you know, what they are, how they work, what that really means for us in terms of privacy and why we need to be concerned, Uh, It's very interesting. And you'll, uh, we'll start that next week. Also coming on the pike. I've got an interview with with someone else from EFF about flock, the new Google technology for that. They say is privacy preserving that, you know, that will replace third-party cookies for web tracking, but is definitely not. We're going to talk about that. And another interview from the library freedom project. That was really, really interesting. It was a great interview. All this is coming down the pike. So subscribe. If you haven't, you don't want to miss these for sure. A couple things I want to throw out. Um, First of all, I am open if you have a group that would like to hear my message to give a seminar. Uh, And of course, right now, this would be over Zoom. Uh, I guess at any point, it could be over Zoom or some sort of uh, um, technology like that so so that we could do it remotely. But if you've got a group of a decent size that would like to get a lecture on uh, privacy and security, I would be happy to do that. You can find all my contact information on the website. If you go to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons and look at, uh, there's a contact tab there that'll tell you how to get in touch with me. And I'm trying to get, uh, starting to do this more. I've already, you know, I teach classes already on this kind of stuff and I've given seminars before, but I'm trying to branch out and actually start doing this a little bit more, quote unquote, for a living. So we'll see how that goes. But anyway, if you're interested, please reach out. And, you know, and if it's a big enough audience, uh, uh, you know, I would certainly consider doing a custom presentation on a particular topic if that's what you'd prefer. Also, stay tuned. That secret project thing is... I I know I've been talking about it for a long time and it's taken a long time. There's quite, quite the process of getting this done with, you know, contracting artists to do work and, uh, having molds made and working with manufacturers. And it's been quite the experience, but it, I, I, promise it is coming and with it will be a whole marketing push around, um, Uh, around this and some other related things, and I'm going to try to attract a lot more patrons to Patreon. So, um, there's already, I, what I hope is great content there already, if you want to be a patron, uh, but I will be adding more to that. So, and offering some specials, uh, for becoming a patron. So stay tuned. That is coming. I am not good at marketing. I don't know if you can tell that, but I really could use some help in that regard too. And I'm not kidding. If there's anybody out there that had some marketing background that would love to give me some advice, I'm all ears. You can reach out to me again. you can find the contact information on my website and you know if you want to become a patron uh you can get in at super cheap. two bucks uh, is the cheapest level. you can get in and come interact with me directly. Uh, I've got a discord server. we can chat there. Uh, I would love to to talk to you guys there and and answer questions and just get feedback that uh, I would really enjoy that. And this is always very one sided that's me talking in a little room to a microphone, uh, but it'd be a lot more fun to chat back and forth with real live people in real time. So uh, get to patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com and search for Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. Of course, there's links in the show notes and everywhere else uh, to get there as uh, as well. Okay, that's going to wrap it up for this week. I'm getting my second vaccine shot this week. I can't wait for that. Hopefully you guys are getting your shots too. We're really honestly in a race against time. These variants keep popping up and they're getting worse. Uh, We really need to get some herd immunity. So please get your shots as soon as possible and help others to get their shots as well. It can be a very arcane process, very cumbersome. So I've definitely heard of people not getting them uh, or missing their opportunities because they couldn't figure out how to do it. So um, if you can figure it out, help someone else to figure it out for them as well. All right, thanks everybody. Stay safe out there, get those shots, and until next week, as always, don't get caught with your drawbridge down.